Hello, my friends. Thanks so much for joining me for another week of Book of Mormon study here on Unshaken. Today we have some incredible chapters to discuss, Alma 17 through 22, what we normally think of as the missionary chapters of the Book of Mormon, although missionary chapters are scattered throughout. But before we jump into those, there was one thing I wanted to share just briefly. I'm so thrilled that our community of Unshaken Saints is growing. I'm always amazed at the number of people around the world that want to dive into the Book of Mormon in ways that perhaps they haven't before. So to you who are new to the channel, welcome aboard. We're thrilled to have you. But you have missed a few things since we started. I started filming these lessons when we were in the Book of Jacob. And since then, our audience seems to grow and grow each week. But that means that early on, we met King Benjamin, and a little bit later, we met Abinadi. And the messages of those two prophets are life-changing. I invite you to go back, when you have time, and view the lessons from Mosiah 1 through 6. Those were four videos. And then the lessons from Mosiah 11 through 17. Two videos that time. Because the doctrines and principles that King Benjamin and Abinadi teach are some of the most essential, life-changing truths that you'll find anywhere in the Book of Mormon. To understand grace and where works fit in and why God asks us to do things and yet still maintains that it is by grace that we are saved. To see the gap that opens up between our beliefs and our behaviors and see what God asks us to do to bridge that gap versus what the natural man sometimes suggests instead. So if you want to change the way you view grace and works, if you want to purify your motives for why you're trying to live the gospel, if you want to come to terms with your own natural man or natural woman while neither excusing it nor berating yourself for it, then go back and learn from King Benjamin and from Abinadi. Of all the lessons I've taught through these videos, with the exception of one I did for Easter about the atonement of Jesus Christ, those lessons are, in my opinion, the most important ones I've ever taught. So again, that's Mosiah 1 through 6, four videos, and Mosiah 11 through 17, two videos. I promise they'll be worth your while because the doctrines they contain are just that important. I heard from one viewer who watched the King Benjamin videos with his wife. She said to him, I wish we would have learned it this way when I was a youth. Or as I said to another student who was contemplating leaving the church and becoming an evangelical Christian because of the hopefulness of their message of grace, I said to him, it's all in King Benjamin. Just reread, really study, immerse yourself in his words. And everything that you think you're missing has been there all along. So go back and watch those ones when you get a chance. Now, I'm thrilled that today we get to talk about some of the best known and most loved missionaries in the Book of Mormon, particularly Ammon. His story is so much more than chopping off arms. I hope that some of the principles he teaches us today, along with his brother Aaron, will help us in our own missionary efforts, whether that's preparing for or serving a full-time mission, it's for you elders and sisters and seniors, whether that's ministering to one another in our wards and stakes, raising kids, serving in callings, teaching the gospel, posting our testimony on social media, whatever it might be, missionary work is the lifeblood of the Church of Jesus Christ. And what the Book of Mormon teaches about it is incredible. Now I'll admit, I'm a bit biased on this one, because I absolutely loved being a missionary. It's one of the reasons I chose to teach the gospel for a living, because I fell in love with that as a missionary in Puerto Rico 25 years ago. I was one of those little kids that hoped they'd call me on a mission when I'd grown a foot or two. When I was in high school, I was on the stake youth committee, and one of my favorite perks was that I got to have this tag, Jared Halverson, Youth Missionary. When I turned 19, I graduated to an even better tag, Elder Halverson, 
la Iglesia de Jesucristo de los Santos de los Últimos Días, as I began serving my mission in Puerto Rico. I came home and just didn't want to take the tag off. In fact, my dad was my stake president who released me. I still haven't completely forgiven him for that. But I drove from L.A. to Provo so I could apply at the MTC and begin teaching there. And I spent more time as a teacher of missionaries than I did as a missionary myself. It was incredible. By the end of my experience at the MTC, I was wearing this tag instead as a teacher supervisor, trying to help teachers, teach missionaries, teach investigators. Lots of middlemen and middle women there. But it was always a blessing for me to be involved in some way in the work of the Lord. In fact, just a few months ago, right before coronavirus seemed to shut the world down, I got the chance to return to my old mission stomping grounds for the first time since I left it 24 years ago. My wife and I spent several days in Puerto Rico, and yes, we visited the beaches that I didn't get to see when I was a full-time missionary 24 years before. But my favorite thing about going back was visiting chapels, seeing people, going to church, more than anything, feeling once again what I felt as a young missionary. It was so incredible to relive that a little, to drive through old areas and sit back in awe that I got to live there, that I got to serve there, that's my waters of Mormon, the ultimate place where I came to know my Redeemer. To this day, I am so grateful that the Lord let me serve a mission. When I was a student in college, I spent five months in Israel studying abroad and came to understand why they call it the Holy Land. Holy because of everything Jesus did there. But I will always have a second personal Holy Land, and that's Puerto Rico because of the things that Jesus let me do there. So please forgive me if I get a little nostalgic in these chapters in the Book of Mormon. They teach principles that changed my life a quarter of a century ago and continue to do so today. It all begins with a mission reunion of sorts in chapter 17, verse 1. Alma is journeying from Gideon southward towards the land of Manti continuing to make the rounds as he's been doing for years now, trying to whip the church into shape. But on the way, to his astonishment, it says, he met with the sons of Mosiah who were journeying towards the land of Zarahemla. Now, the last time we saw all five of these friends together was back in Mosiah chapter 28. They just had their life-changing experience, this encounter with the angel, and all of them felt so much desire and concern for the welfare of other people's souls that they decided to spend the rest of their lives teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Alma the Younger's case, that meant teaching Nephites, leading the church, becoming high priest. In the sons of Mosiah's case, that meant going to the Lamanites and sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that up to that point wanted nothing to do with it. It didn't take us long to get from Mosiah 28 to Alma 17. It took them 14 years to get there. No wonder there's astonishment that after about a decade and a half, they see each other again by chance although we would know better, as they're journeying from one area of missionary service to another. Verse 2, these sons of Mosiah were with Alma at the time the angel first appeared unto them, just in case we forgot. Therefore Alma did rejoice exceedingly to see his brethren. But it wasn't just the thrill of bumping into old buddies that you haven't seen in a while. What added more to his joy was the fact that they were still his brethren in the Lord. Growing up together, I assume they would always feel like they were brethren. But to be brethren in the Lord requires an additional element in this relationship. It's one thing to maintain the connections horizontally. We'll always be buddies. I feel that way about old high school friends, old college roommates, 
classmates from grad school, people I've known as we've moved around the country. Old relationships, when they're renewed, are an incredible thing. But to still be brethren in the Lord takes things to an entirely new level. Elder Maxwell used to say that this is a real war with real casualties. And I imagine that every one of us can think about people that will always be our brethren, but for one reason or another can no longer be considered brethren in the Lord because they've left him. And as a result, it feels a little like they've left us as well, or at least left that all-important element that bound us together in the Lord. People that I know that have left the church, both friends and family, will always be my brethren. But I do miss the spiritual bonds that made us brethren in the Lord. We'll see a few principles later in the chapters today on what we might be able to do to help renew some of those relationships. In fact, right here, we don't have to wait long. We see some elements that made them the spiritual survivors that they were. In the middle of verse 2, it says, They had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth, for they were men of a sound understanding, and they had searched the Scriptures diligently that they might know the Word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. No wonder they were still brethren in the Lord. They were as tapped into the divine power of God as they were 14 years earlier when they began these missions. In fact, they were probably more so. I have loved reconnecting with old mission companions lately. People I served with in prior wards. In fact, it's been one of my favorite things about making these videos is renewing relationships that were founded in spiritual things. Brethren and sisters in the Lord. And why are we all still faithful? Because we tended to do the kinds of things that were described in verse 2 and verse 3. In fact, it's interesting the way it ends in verse 3. Focused on their teaching. Since that's the message that we're going to see for the next several chapters. But they taught with power and authority of God. Now, as a teacher, that's my dream. In fact, now that I think of it, I will remember one prayer I offered as a brand new missionary in the MTC. This is 26 years ago. And I've offered countless prayers since then and innumerable prayers as a missionary. Think about how often you pray as a full-time missionary. But this is one of the few that I actually remember. I was kneeling on the floor in our little dorm room at the MTC with my roommates, my companions, and a few other missionaries in our district. And we were just starting out. We had no clue what we were doing. But knowing that phrase from Alma 17, I remember pouring out my heart to Heavenly Father on behalf of this little circle of full-time servants and pleading with God that we could learn to teach with power and authority. That people would sense that as we shared the gospel with them. That the mantle would fall upon us. That people would know we were authorized servants of God and that we had his power behind us as we preached his word. I just remember such desire at that time in the MTC wanting to become that kind of missionary. And the Lord allowed that to happen for each of us. What's amazing about these two verses is that it, they give us the chance to reverse engineer that kind of teacher. And it doesn't just apply to full-time missionaries. We all teach. We teach in the home. We teach in the church. We teach in the community. And how do we get to a point where we can teach with God's power and authority? We'll go back step by step. Reverse engineer it. 
How did they teach with power and authority? They had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. That's what allowed them to teach with such power and authority. And we've talked about this before in a prior lesson. The spirit of revelation is having the Holy Ghost with us. And the spirit of prophecy, according to the book of Revelation, is the testimony of Jesus. So how do we teach with power and authority? We teach our testimonies of Jesus Christ, born through the power of his spirit. And spirit to spirit, that testimony is communicated. Well, how do we gain that spirit of prophecy and that spirit of revelation? How do we acquire solid testimonies through the power of the Holy Ghost? Go back a step. It says they had given themselves too much prayer and fasting. It doesn't just say that they prayed and fasted a lot. It's that they gave themselves to that. There seems to be an, an emptying of self, a full submission into these acts of worship. This doesn't seem like box checking to me of going through the motions and doing the things that we're supposed to do to fulfill the so-called primary answers. But to give yourself, to lose yourself in these acts of worship until they become a part of you. Instinctive, new heart, new countenance, born again, all those things that Alma taught back in chapter 5. And what preceded, or at least accompanied that, go back to the end of verse 2, they knew the word of God. And how did they get that? They had searched the scriptures diligently. You see both mind and heart at work here? The end of verse 2 seems to suggest flexing those intellectual muscles, searching the scriptures diligently, trying to come to know the word of God. Whereas verse 3 is more of the heart side of things, giving oneself to prayer and fasting, allowing one's heart to be changed through true worship of God. It's almost like the sons of Mosiah and Alma are feeling, we need to know the word of God so we can teach it. But we also need to feel it deeply. It needs to settle down into the soul, move from mind to heart. We need to feel these things so that we're teaching truth out of our own changed hearts. So study the gospel like we're doing here. But let it mean something to you. Weave it into the fibers of your own soul. Give yourself to prayer and fasting. Worship the Lord. Worship is so much more than just something that we do. It's something we do because of something we feel about something we believe. And we see that here. They study the scriptures to believe certain things. They fast and pray to feel certain things. And then they go out and do. They teach. They teach with prophecy and revelation. They teach with power and authority. It's who they've become. No wonder they're not real casualties in this real war. No wonder they're still brethren in the Lord. They're still connected to Him, which makes it so much easier to stay connected to one another. Now, verse 4, they'd been teaching the Word of God for the space of 14 years among the Lamanites. We're now fully shifting our attention from Alma, who we've spent the last several chapters with, to the sons of Mosiah and what they've been doing among the Lamanites. They'd had much success in bringing many to the knowledge of the truth. Yea, by the power of their words, many were brought before the altar of God to call on his name and confess their sins before him. Sounds like the kind of mission any one of us would want. And yet buckle up because notice verse 5. The verse 4 experiences that any of us might dream of for missionaries always seem to be accompanied by verse 5 waiting somewhere in the wings. These are the circumstances which attended them in their journeys. Many afflictions, much suffering both in body and in mind, hunger, thirst, fatigue, 
also much labor in the Spirit. We saw that laboring in the Spirit with Alma himself as he was pouring out his heart in hopes that God would pour out his Spirit upon the people of Ammonihah. We saw suffering in body and mind and hunger, thirst, fatigue with Alma and Amulek as they wallowed in prison before their miraculous deliverance. More importantly, we saw hunger, thirst, and fatigue in King Benjamin's description of what Jesus would endure, even more that man can suffer except it be unto death. Paul himself used the phrase, the fellowship of his sufferings. And that's what serving God, that's what sharing the gospel entails. Joining Christ in a fellowship of suffering. Suffering, perhaps most of all, over the sins and sorrows of those that we have been called to help save. We review the history briefly in verse 6. Having taken leave of their father Mosiah in the first year of the judges, having refused the kingdom which their father was desirous to confer upon them. And also this was the minds of the people. Dad's decision to shift in a democratic direction was his second choice. His initial desire had been to confer the kingdom upon one of his sons. But in seven, they chose a higher and harder path. They departed out of the land of Zarahemla. Notice what they took with them. I don't remember putting any of these things in my missionary luggage. Swords, spears, bows, arrows, slings. I love the irony here because for generations, how many Nephites had traveled to enemy territory armed with those same things, but for a completely different purpose. They brought swords and spears and bows and arrows and slings to fight Lamanites. These sons of Mosiah brought those weapons not to fight, but to provide food for themselves so that they could go preach to the Lamanites instead. Talk about beating swords into plowshares, right? But they departed into the wilderness, took with them several who they had selected, and they went to preach the word of God unto the Lamanites. Now in verse 9, they fasted much and prayed much, just like they'd been doing all along, that the Lord would grant unto them a portion of his spirit to go with them and to abide with them. We know we can't do this on our own. We will need the power of God with us. So please give us a portion of thy spirit. DNC 109 talks about growing up in God and receiving a fullness of the Holy Ghost. Well, I don't know if any of us are worthy for that fullness quite yet. But even if we can have but a portion enough to change us and help us change them. May it go with us. May it abide with us. Not just a coming and going, but an abiding with us. A constant companionship so that we can be instruments in the hands of God to bring, notice this phrase, if it were possible. There's no guarantees of success here. We saw that back in Mosiah 28 when they first suggested to their father. We have no idea this is going to work, but perhaps they might. That, those phrases keep coming up in that chapter. It just might work, Dad. We have to give it a chance. We see that same idea in verse 16 here, that this was the cause for which the sons of Mosiah had undertaken the work, that perhaps, just maybe, they might bring them unto repentance, that perhaps they might bring them to know of the plan of redemption. We go on missions not because we are assured of success, we go in the hopes that someone just might, maybe, perhaps, open their heart and mind to the flood of light that God is willing to shed upon them. These four brothers went with a hope that if it were possible, back to verse 9, 
their brethren, the Lamanites. Notice what they called them. Not our enemies, but our brethren, that they might bring them to the knowledge of the truth, to the knowledge of the baseness of the traditions of their fathers. Not the baseness of those fathers, just the baseness of their traditions, which were not correct. And with that selfless prayer, verse 10, the Lord did visit them with his spirit. How could he not? It wasn't for themselves that they were asking. I remember once when I was teaching at the MTC, when I got to wear this tag, and I had a new district come, and they were struggling, as most sets of new missionaries do. And I remember one night at the end of our class together, I, we were about to have the closing prayer, and I said, elders and sisters, we're all kneeling together in our circle. I said, before we pray, can I ask you something? And I picked one of the missionaries and just said, can I guess what you've been praying for on your own? Can I pretend to read your mind for a moment? I have a feeling that last night and probably this morning, you prayed for help with Spanish. Am I right? I'm sheepishly. See, see. At least I got that word down. Uh, you probably prayed to understand the gospel better, to be able to make sense of the lessons and be able to memorize them and understand how best to teach, right? See, see. You probably prayed to be able to deal with some homesickness, to get used to missionary life. See, probably prayed to get along with your companion. Sorry, Elder. See, and I basically just kind of went through the list of everything a missionary normally needs. This wasn't mind reading on my part. I'd been there. I prayed for all those things myself. And in fact, that's what I asked the district. I'm not just picking on this missionary. All the rest of you elders and sisters, is that what each of you have been praying? Across the board, they'd had the same kinds of prayers. And so I asked them this. Elders and sisters, you know what you need, and you've been begging the Lord for it. But did you notice that everyone else in this district needs the same thing? So I've got a challenge for you. Tonight when you pray, don't ask for those blessings for yourself. Ask them for the rest of the elders and sisters in your district. And have faith that they are doing the same thing for your sake. And then do the math. And what do you end up with? Instead of one semi-selfish prayer offered by you and for you, you now have 11 unselfish prayers seeking blessings from heaven on your behalf. Can we try that? They all did. And it was amazing to watch that district connect better with heaven, but also connect better with one another. The Lord does visit us with his spirit, but especially when we are asking selflessly for that companionship and asking that that same companionship might be with others who need it so desperately. Now, knowing what they were leaving behind back in verse 6, their father and their father's kingdom, and perhaps sensing what they were headed for, verse 5, the sufferings and afflictions, there is a certain sense of discomfort about beginning a mission. And so back in 10, the Lord says to them, be comforted. And best of all, they were be comforted, and they were comforted. Talk about immediate obedience, right? It is amazing that as missionaries, as hard as missionary life can be, the companionship of the Spirit truly does bring comfort. That is his name, his role, right? The comforter. I remember being freaked out about starting my mission. And I was the guy gung-ho, I wanted to be one. And yet, leaving home, starting that journey to the MTC freaked me out. We spent a night in Las Vegas on the drive to Provo. I know, strange place to spend one of your last nights before you hit the MTC. But I remember feeling so nervous about what was about to happen in my life that I just begged my parents, can we please go to the temple? 
And so I remember going to the Las Vegas temple and just feeling such comfort, such reassurance that God would be my companion on my mission and everything would be fine. I felt so recharged and reassured as I sat in the celestial room. And then we left the temple and I started freaking out again. By the time we were driving through St. George, I was such a mess again that I said, can we please go to the temple? My parents were like, what? We were just in the temple in Vegas. I said, I know. That was a couple hours ago, though. Can we please go again? Sure. And so we pulled in and did another session in St. George. And once again, sitting there in the temple, in the Lord's house, I knew that he would be my companion as a missionary. He said, basically, be comforted. And I was at least until I got outside and started freaking out again. But again, once in the MTC, temple every week. And even though my two years of Puerto Rico were templeless, I did feel the comforting companionship of the Holy Ghost. And I was comforted. By the way, I do think there is some unspoken action between the be comforted in verse 10 and the they were comforted that immediately follows. I think they accepted it that they chose to be comforted, even when circumstances did not necessarily make that easy. Remember there's that moment in Enoch's experience in the book of Moses, where he's seen the wickedness of the world, the suffering for that wickedness, and he says that I refuse to be comforted. It's the sense I can never be happy again. Perhaps you've felt that at times in life. And yet the Lord immediately says to Enoch, lift up your heart and be glad and look And then he shows him things. Most importantly, the atonement of Jesus Christ. And then Enoch, who had refused to be comforted, was comforted. He allowed that to take place. He chose comfort. Now, I know that particularly mental illness can get in the way of choosing that. But as much as it is in our power, when the comforter comes, when the Spirit says, be comforted, Let it happen. Choose to make it happen. Lift up your heart. Be glad and look around you to see the hand of God in your life and the lives of others. That's what these sons of Mosiah are beginning to do. Verse 11, the Lord continues, Go forth among the Lamanites, thy brethren. You were right to call them that back in verse 9. They are. Establish my word the word you have come to know through your diligent study of the scriptures. Be patient in long-suffering and afflictions, and don't consider those things interruptions of your mission. Consider that part of your mission, because the patience you show during those difficult times is a way to show forth a good example unto them in me. That's amazing. Perhaps even more than the message you teach It's the effect of that message on your own life that will wake up the world to its truthfulness. The gospel is not an escape from afflictions. It's what gives us the hope and encouragement to endure them well. And what better place to feel those afflictions and to suffer them with patience than as a missionary? Maybe that's one of the reasons missions have to be that hard. Because life is. And the way we show how the gospel helps us endure missionary work just might be one of the most important lessons we can teach investigators on how the gospel will help them endure the afflictions that come into each of our lives. Back to 11, that's one way I will make you an instrument in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. 
So yes, there's the teaching of God's word, establish my word, but there's the living of it yourself. Trust in me, endure it well. Be as patient and long-suffering in your afflictions as Christ was in his. Talk about the ultimate good example from the ultimate instrument of God. Verse 12, having received that message, the hearts of the sons of Mosiah and those that were with them took courage to go forth unto the Lamanites to declare unto them the word of God. They were blessed with comfort, so they must have been distressed. They were blessed with courage, so they must have been overwhelmed by what they were about to do. Verse 13, they come into the land and separate off into different directions, trusting in the Lord. So that's yet another blessing that came. In fact, perhaps that's the source of the courage and comfort they just received. They shifted from trust in self. I have to be able to do this. How am I going to be able to convince Lamanites? Do I know the gospel well enough? Will I be able to connect with them? Will I be able to change their hearts? No. If you think you have to do it yourself, then good luck finding comfort or courage. Because you can't do it yourself. Missions are too hard. Hearts are too hard for us to soften them ourselves. But once we shift and realize this is God's work and we have God's power and God's authority to help God's children receive God's word. You see the common denominator with all of those things? God is behind this. He just said it. I want you to be an instrument in my hands. Remember Isaiah's thought? That it doesn't make any sense for the axe to be boast about all the wood that it's chopped? It didn't do the cutting? It was just a tool in the hands of the axeman. And it's the same thing here. Not just don't boast, axe, but in this case, don't worry, axe. I'll sharpen you. You are my instrument. I will do the work. And once you place your trust in me, then comfort and courage will naturally flow. Because God's got this, even when we don't. Well, continuing in 13, they trusted in the Lord that they should meet again at the close of their harvest. I love that they use that word. Remember earlier, if it were possible, perhaps, might, maybe, I don't know if this is going to be successful at all. We'll see this a little bit later. But nobody back in Zarahemla assumed that it would be successful at all. And yet, what are they trusting? That there will be a harvest. They couldn't possibly have imagined just how big that harvest would be. But they did trust that they would come together again and that there would be a harvest. They supposed that great was the work which they had undertaken. And so it was. Assuredly, it was great. And what made it so great and so hard, so daunting, so depressing, so in need of comfort and courage and trust, that they had undertaken to preach the word of God to a wild and a hardened and a ferocious people. How'd you like that on your mission call? Mine just said, Elder Halverson, you are hereby called to serve as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints. You are assigned to labor in the Puerto Rico San Juan mission. Well, imagine this one. You are assigned to labor in the wild and hardened and ferocious people mission. Still want to go? I actually had a colleague that I taught with years ago who said when his son received his patriarchal blessing, in that blessing it included some promises about his mission, but it said something that blew him away. It said, you will be called to labor among a godless people. I won't tell you where this elder ended up serving, but it is amazing to think, what have I gotten myself into? Where am I going? I'm being called to serve among a godless people? I'm being called to serve among a wild and hardened and ferocious people? 
He goes on in 14, yeah, these are people who delight in murdering the Nephites. Oh, what are you, sons of Mosiah? Oh, Nephites? Hmm, that's unfortunate. Uh, they delight in robbing, plundering them. Why? Because their hearts are set upon riches, gold, silver, precious stones, all the things that you will ask them to give up as you help them place their hearts upon the riches of God instead. They sought to obtain these things by murdering and plundering, that they might not labor for them with their own hands. 15 continues, they were a very indolent people, many of whom did worship idols. I've lost track of how many times we've seen that, that connection between idleness and idleness, I-D-L-E and I-D-O-L. Real worship is work, and these missionaries are going to try to help them find that, develop within themselves the willingness to work at true worship. Now, there's still hope for them. Yes, the curse of God has fallen upon them because of the traditions of their fathers, that curse being separation from God. You're the ones that are going to try to reverse that, to bring them back to God. And they can be. The promises of the Lord are extended unto them on the conditions of repentance. You just need to help them repent. And they've got plenty of things to repent of. Notice, by the way, that big list in verse 14 about murdering and robbing and plundering and so on. It's interesting that for the Lamanites, people had become objectified. And in a way, objects had become personified as the things of greatest worth. People didn't matter to the Lamanites. It's so easy to murder and rob and plunder when you have dehumanized the other. And when you have idolized possessions, then people continue to sink in the scale. One of the things that these Nephite missionaries were going to have to do was help the Lamanites see one another and see themselves as real people, not simply objects to be taken advantage of. Now, one last verse about the kinds of people they'd be teaching. Jump ahead to verse 20. And after these brethren have split off to go their various directions among the Lamanites, Ammon having gone to the land of Ishmael, the Lamanites take him, bind him, like they did with every Nephite, and bring him to the king. And then, look at the end of 20. It's left to the pleasure of the king to do whatever he wants with any Nephite captive. Here's the options, though. It's kind of like, here's the menu. Number one, you can slay them. That seems to be a popular dish. Number two, retain them in captivity. You can enslave them or just kind of hold on to them in captivity. Or to cast them into prison. Even less freedom than the previous choice. Or, if you want, you can cast them out of the land according to your will and pleasure. Now, I don't see convert to their church as one of the options there. I certainly don't see offer them one of your daughters to wife, which is exactly what this king ends up doing with Ammon. Instead, no, it's you die, you're enslaved, you're imprisoned, or you're cast out. This is what we do with Nephites. No wonder this group of missionaries needs so much courage and comfort and trust in the Lord as they begin this mission. But again, the result that they see is so far beyond anything they could have imagined. There's something not on the menu that the Lord had in mind. How did we get there? See, when the king is contemplating his options, verse 22, the king inquires of Ammon if it's his desire to dwell in the land among the Lamanites. And Ammon's response, verse 23, yeah, it is. I desire to dwell among this people for a time. And then he adds this, Maybe even until the day I die. I love that option. By the end of my mission, I wanted to extend. I asked my mission president for an extra month, and he laughed. He said, Elder, you can have an extra six months. I said, really? He said, no. I'm like, oh, thanks for getting my hopes up. 
but wanting to serve not just for the time allotted, but perhaps until the day I die. I want to serve as long as you'll let me. I'll admit, when I started my mission, I was more at the beginning of that verse. I just wanted to dwell among that people for a time. Two years seemed like a big commitment, long enough to stay. And yet by the end, I truly had shifted to until the day I die. Can I just keep serving? In fact, when missionaries come home, I teach the gospel to young adults. And so I meet a lot of people that are heading out on missions and returning from them. And when I see, especially students that I've taught before, and they serve and then they come back, the advice I always give them right off the bat is, go get your ear pierced. It's your first order of business as a return missionary. Go pierce your ear. Now the sisters kind of look at me strange, like um, my, my ears have been pierced for a long time. The elders really look at me strange. What on earth are you talking about? And I, so I say, well, make sure you read Exodus 21 before you go get your ear pierced. You see, Exodus 21 has this fascinating little verse about what to do with servants once they're freed. You see, in ancient Israel, there was a law against perpetual servitude. We don't want to turn things into slavery like you experienced back in Egypt. So you can have a servant, but only for six years. On the seventh year, kind of like day of rest, a sabbatical year, the seventh year, they go free. Unless, and here's the one exception, unless they don't want to. If the servant says to his master, I will not go free. I love my master. I love this household that I'm serving. I love the blessings that have come into my life since I began my service. And I don't want to lose any of them. So please allow me to stay. Perhaps until the day I die. Well, there needed to be some visual reminder, some evidence that this servant was there out of choice, not out of compulsion. That they weren't being kept beyond the six years against their will. So what the master of the house would do was to take that servant, stand him up against the door frame of the home. A lot of important things happen with door frames in Exodus, right? The Passover and so on. Well, in this case, it was there was a ritual of sorts to attach the servant to the household of his master. And so they take the servant, put their ear up next to the doorpost, and then take an awl. You know one of those sharp instruments that you use to poke holes through leather? Well, in this case, it's going to poke a hole through the ear of the servant. You basically nail the servant to the door frame of the house. You are a part of our household now. You're one of us permanently. And then you pull out the awl. And for the rest of that servant's life, he has a hole in his ear to show, I am here because I want to be. Honestly, I wish every mission president gave an all to their elders and sisters as they left. Or every stake president, when a missionary came home and reported to the high council, here's your next order of business. You've served your time. You put in your 18 to 24 months, or however long the Lord allowed you to serve. You dwelt among those people for a time. But if during that time you came to love your master, and came to appreciate the blessings that that service brought you, blessings you never want to part with, then pierce your ear. Don't do it literally, especially the elders. But show the Lord that you want to serve him until the day you die. I am so grateful for the symbolic holes in my ears that show just how closely I want to stay connected to my father's house and my father's work. 
Now that obviously impressed King Lamoni. Like I said earlier, he offers him one of his daughters to wife. Not one of the items on the menu. And how does Ammon respond in 25? Uh, no thanks, King. Now even that would have taken guts. You just escaped death, captivity, imprisonment, casting out. You've been offered the daughter of the king. You would now be a prince in the kingdom. And you're going to turn that down? This isn't just self-sacrifice. This is potentially offending the king that you just got on your good side. When it comes to the self-sacrifice, I'm not surprised at all by Ammon's response. He'd just given up a kingdom, right? I don't need to be a prince among the Lamanites. I was already the prince among the Nephites. I'm not tempted by your throne because I wasn't tempted by my father's. And just to show that I'm not rejecting your offer because I don't want to be a part of your household, I do want to be a part of your household, but not as your son, simply as your servant. I haven't come to receive from you. I've come to give to you. And so please allow me to serve. This is so true to Ammon's character, by the way. If you go back the page in verse 18, right before they split off in their different directions, it says that Ammon being the chief among them, which again, I don't know if that means oldest son, since it seemed like Aaron was the oldest son when it came to kingship. I don't know if this is just division of labor that Aaron seemed to be more the politically adept and Ammon seemed to be more the spiritually. I don't know how they ranked things then. But Ammon is the chief among them, or rather, here's a little correction, he did administer unto them. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus said? He that will be chief among you, let him be the minister of all. This is true servant leadership. That's who Ammon has been, and that's who Ammon continues to be. So he blesses them according to their several stations. He imparts the word of God unto them. He administers unto them before his departure. That's what a chief among them ought to do. Well, now when he's being offered by the king to become one of the chief among them, his own son-in-law, instead, oh, I'm just here to minister. I am here as servant of all. And the king, evidently not offended at all that his daughter was not accepted, sets Ammon among his other servants to watch the flocks of Lamoni according to their custom. There just seems to be something fitting there to become a shepherd, since shepherding souls was exactly what Ammon had come to do. Now we know the story here. It's been forever immortalized in our memory, right? He's out there with the other servants. He's watering the flocks and a band of Lamanites comes to scatter the flocks. And they do. The other servants begin to murmur saying, oh, now the king's gonna slay us as he has our brethren when their flocks were scattered. This is not the first time that this has happened. They begin to weep at the end of verse 28, saying, Behold, our flocks are scattered already. It's too late. It's already happened. And 29, notice this, they wept because of the fear of being slain. Now that makes perfect sense, right? I'm sure I would weep out of that fear as well. But notice who gets lost in all of this? The sheep themselves. There's no concern among these Lamanite servants about, well, what's happened to them? as the Lamanites have come in and scattered them. It's just a matter of, oh no, this always happens. It was our day on duty and it happened once again and now we're the ones that are gonna get killed, just like others have suffered for their negligence in the past. Whoa, 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 is me. Now let me take you back to a Puerto Rican laundromat 25 years ago. Puerto Rico had struggled for a long time before I got there with inactivity. 
That's not a problem just there. It's a challenge throughout the world. But it had become a huge problem on that island, to the point that a year before I got to my mission, Elder Perry of the Quorum of the Twelve had come with the intention of taking one stake and dissolving it back into two missionary districts and ended up taking all four stakes and dissolving them all instead, creating eight mission districts in their place. When I got there one year later, the saints were still kind of reeling over all of this. But inactivity had become such a prevalent problem and such an almost an expected norm that it didn't really trouble the saints the way that it should have. And in fact, if it did trouble them, it was usually more a matter of, well, what does that say about us as the active members rather than what's happening with my less active former fellow saints? You see, by that time, I remember I had served, my second area was this tiny little branch, so small, more of a twig. This thing was so tiny that they didn't even have enough priesthood leadership within their own boundaries. So from a neighboring city, they borrowed a priesthood leader to serve as the branch president. Someone that was part of a different branch, will you come and help lead this twig? And I remember we met in a little rented house. It had no parking lot, but didn't need one. People could park on the driveway and there were still plenty of spaces left. And the half dozen of us, maybe eight or ten on a really good day, would meet together in that little house. It was just so far up in the mountains that it was really hard for those members to go down to other places along the coast to worship with others in larger branches. Well, I remember there was a policewoman that was in that branch that was the life of the party. She was awesome. And she was an incredible missionary herself. She told me that she would always keep a copy of the Book of Mormon and leave it on the passenger seat in her car, face up, and then offer to give people rides all the time. But because the book was right there on the seat, they literally had to pick it up, look at it, touch it, lift it, move it, or they'd end up sitting on it. She said it led to some amazing conversations. Great, great way to break the ice and start the conversation, right? Especially with a lot of the kinds of people that a policewoman would pick up. Well, she was awesome, full of energy and excitement. She was really the, one of the moving forces of that tiny little twig. Well, I remember almost a year later going back to that old area on a trade-off. And I remember asking the missionaries, so how's so-and-so doing? And they looked at me like, who? I said, what do you mean who? There's like six people that come to church. You should know all of them, right? But honestly, they had no memory. They had never met this woman. I was like, what happened? I took them to meet her and asked her to tell her story. Sure enough, over the past year, she had become inactive. I'll admit, it was hard to be a member in that tiny branch. Distances to travel and so on, it was, it was difficult. A neighbor ended up inviting her to go to her church because it was closer and more convenient. She did. She felt like she was still learning about Jesus. She still loved the Book of Mormon, but this was just easier. And so she stopped coming to our church. And then she told me this. And in the months and months and months that had passed since then, not a single member of her old branch had reached out to her. That's what devastated me most. She didn't get lost in the shuffle of some huge ward. Seriously, she was like a sixth of the active membership. And yet, when she stopped coming, nobody did anything. It's not that they couldn't have noticed. The question was, could they have cared? As I sat at a laundromat, this is such a vivid memory for me, just watching the clothes go around in the dryer. I remember I was studying Alma chapter 17, this same chapter, and seeing the reaction of these fellow servants of Ammon's to the scattering of the sheep. And realized, that's exactly what I'm seeing all around me. 
This is just what always seems to happen. People join the church and then fall away. They're in one door and out the other. And oh well, the gospel will stick with some people and it doesn't seem to stick with others. The only thing that really seemed to bother them was when the mission president or a district president or a branch president started to chastise them about inactivity numbers, rates of retention and so on. And then it was a matter of kind of this guilt, like, oh, we're going to get berated for this. We're going to get busted. It's like I was watching it unfold right in this chapter. The flocks are scattered and they wept out of fear of being slain and never thought twice about the sheep themselves that had wandered. Everyone but Ammon, that is. When he saw this, verse 29, his heart is swollen within him with joy. They're, they're weeping out of devastation. We're about to die. He's probably weeping tears of joy. My mission is finally ready to take off. For he said, I will show forth my power unto these my fellow servants. And he corrects himself. Well, I, sorry, sorry I said that. Sorry I used the possessive pronoun. It's not my power. Rather, it's the power which is in me. You see how he corrected himself? It, this is God's power. I put my trust in him, not in myself. So I will show the power of God which is in me, and I will restore these flocks unto the king. I care about the king. He's not my soon-to-be murderer. He's not someone I fear. He's someone I serve. I'm concerned about the flocks, what's become of those sheep, and I'm concerned about my fellow servants. And if I can do all this for all of them, then I just might win their hearts so I can lead them to believe in my words. Again, that's for their sake as well. Verse 30, These were the thoughts of Ammon when he saw the afflictions of those whom he termed to be his brethren. By the way, there's a beautiful evolution of that relationship. Back in verse 25, he was just a servant among other servants. By verse 29, they are his fellow servants. And here in verse 30, they are his brethren. I felt that shift with my companions. I felt that shift with the people that I was serving. From others to fellows to brothers and sisters. Now he said to them in 31, My brethren, be of good cheer. Sounds like what God had said to him before this all started. Let us go in search of the flocks. We will gather them together and bring them back to the place of water. And thus we will preserve the flocks unto the king and he will not slay us. See all the plural pronouns there? I'm in this with you. You're not just others. You're not even just fellows. You're my brethren. We're in this together. So let's go do something about it. While they were lamenting back in 28, our flocks are scattered already. It's too late. Ammon in 31 is saying, it's not too late. Let's go search for them. Let's go gather them. Let's bring them back and bring them back to the place of living water. We'll preserve them that way. They matter. We'll preserve them to the king. He matters. He won't slay us. We matter. I always laugh in this verse because it's almost like this Lamanite light bulb comes on over their heads and they're like, wait, go search for the flocks? Whoa. I never would have thought of that. I picture Ammon going like, are you serious? I mean, this isn't rocket science. We, they got scattered. They can be gathered. I mean, read your Old Testament. Scattering and gathering of Israel is, it's kind of what it's all about. It's not too late. Yes, they have been scattered, but yes, they can be gathered. Let's just go get them. 
And again, those Lamanites like, man, no wonder the Nephites keep beating us at war. These guys are geniuses. There in that laundromat, as the clothes were going around, it hit me. Maybe they just don't know that people who have been scattered can be helped back home. Maybe all it takes is an Ammon. If I can be that for them and let these members know it's not too late for the people who have wandered, strayed, been scattered, just go search for them. That's the parable of the lost sheep, right? Search for them. Gather them together. They don't want to feel alone either. Bring them back and bring them back to living water. It's all right here. Preserve them. Preserve them unto the King, capital K. It's not about preserving ourselves. It's not about escaping condemnation. Care about the sheep and care about the King. Second great commandment, love others. First great commandment, love God. Between those two, is that not enough motivation for us? Haven't you ever seen a less active be reactivated? A prodigal son come home? It is a beautiful thing to be a part of. As beautiful as any conversion of a non-member. In fact, it might even be more beautiful because there is a greater light that they are sinning against. There are covenants in their past, not just in their future. And we can help them home. Well, again, the Lamanite light bulb has come on. In verse 32, they do exactly that. They go in search of the flocks. They did follow Ammon. They rushed forth with much swiftness. They headed the flocks of the king. They gathered them together and they brought them to the place of water. That's how we do it. We search after those who have strayed. We follow the prophet in doing so. We do it quickly. The slower we go, the further they've strayed. So act quickly. Rush forth with much swiftness. Head them off before they go too far and help them find their way back to living water. Now, this is not a permanent solution, because in 33, those men again stand to scatter their flocks. Opposition will always be there. But what happens this time that hadn't happened before? Ammon said unto his brethren, Encircle the flocks round about, that they flee not. Can we do more of that? More prepare and prevent than repair and repent, to borrow President Benson's phrase. It's not just loving them enough to go in search of them after the fact, but loving them enough before the fact that we encircle them about in the arms of our love and God's so that no scattering ends up taking place in the first place. Meanwhile, Ammon will go and contend with those men who scatter our flocks. I love that possessive pronoun. They're not just the king's sheep. It's not just your responsibility. I'm one of you, my brethren. These are our flocks. They matter to me too. So there's the encircle them about and there's the contend with those on the outside. Sounds a lot like the dual roles of father and mother that we see in the proclamation. Nurture, encircle them about, go out and protect the other side. Both of those sides are needed. Now they do as they're asked in 34 and Ammon does as he's suggested. And he is outnumbered. They were in number not a few. 35, they didn't fear Ammon at all. They supposed that one of their men could slay him. They don't even have to outnumber him. Hey, one of us could do it. And that one of us could slay him according to their pleasure. 
Anybody want dibs on this one? Anyone been a while since you've been able to kill a Nephite? I mean, this guy looks fun. It won't require all of us. So, so anybody? See, I always laugh at the beautiful Arnold Freiburg painting of Ammon with the flocks. Now, Freiburg himself said that he had to muscle up the Nephites in an attempt to show their spiritual strength, since that's harder to put onto a canvas. So he depicted their spiritual strength with bulging biceps and a six-pack. And in that painting, Ammon is ripped. If I was a Lamanite, I don't think I'd mess with that. But verse 35, again, suggests just how inaccurate that painting must be. Nobody feared him. It'll only take one of us. You can do it at your pleasure. But that was only because they saw Ammon's outside. What they didn't see, what they couldn't have known in 35, is that the Lord had promised Mosiah that he would deliver his sons out of their hands. That wasn't the only thing they didn't know. They didn't know that specifically about Ammon. But on a bigger scale, they didn't know anything concerning the Lord. Can you hear the echoes from Ammonihah, the echoes from Abinadi and the priests of Noah, the echoes of Pharaoh and of Cain? Who is God and who is his servant? These Lamanites are clueless of the same two things. All they know is that, hey, we delight in the destruction of our brethren. So no wonder anybody could do it according to their pleasure. It's what they delight in. And this is why we come to scatter the flocks in the first place. This guy's going to stand in the way, then he's got to go. Now, 36, Ammon starts casting stones at them first. This is David and Goliath. With mighty power, God's mighty power, he slings them and slays a certain number to the point that they begin to be astonished at his power. Again, if I looked like Ammon Schwarzenegger, like Freiburg depicts, then I don't know if that kind of strength would be astonishing. But if it's some physical weakling that's showing this astonishing strength, then yeah, that would surprise me. It not only surprised them, it angered them. So now it's no longer according to your pleasure. It's according to your anger. And no longer just one of us. Now it's going to be all of us. But they can't hit him back with their own stones. Ammon has shifted from David to Samuel the Lamanite now. So now they come with their clubs to slay him. Forget chucking rocks from a distance. Let's go mano a mano, shall we? But in 37, everyone that lifted his club to smite Ammon, this is a defensive position on Ammon's part, not an offensive attack, but everyone that lifted his club to smite him, Ammon smote off their arms with his sword. He withstood their blows. Their astonishment therefore continued, and they began to flee. Yeah, I would too. They were not few in number, but he caused them to flee by the strength of his arm. Or as we might correct this, by the strength of God's arm. As soon as that mini battle was over, verse 39, he returned, they watered their flocks, and returned them to the pasture of the king. Again, showing his concern for the sheep themselves. All this scattering and gathering on their part, surely these sheep must be as thirsty and hungry as we are. So give them what they need. The last thing a returning less active needs is our tongue lashing, berating them for having wandered away. Instead, give them living water. Give them the bread of life. Let them find pasture in the pasture of the king. Talk about green pastures that the good shepherd always brings his sheep to. Having done this, the servants then go into the king themselves, bearing the arms which had been spitten off by the sword of Ammon as a testimony of the things which they had done. Which they had done? Well, which he had done. 
That's all right. He'll share the credit. Chapter 18 then begins with this amazement spreading. 